0: You're listening to the Tennis.com Podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Tennis.com Podcast. Steve Tigner and I return after a, a little summer break for both of us. We, you know, really, Steve, last spoke at the tail end of Wimbledon. Um, the, the finals there, obviously. Uh, Roger Federer, Garbini Muguruza two champions there that i i did want to just quickly touch on that to, to kind of put a bow on that and i want to move on to a few other happenings since then and, and get right to where we are just uh on the precipice of the of the august hard court masters and premier events um you know as we lead into the u.s open and and you know there's been obviously so much written about roger federer for for very good reason um I would suggest any Federer fans you you will want to pick up the uh, US Open issue tennis magazine. You'll you'll see why right away there. But I want to spend this time actually just to make mention of Muguruza who I think could probably get overlooked in all this. Um, she, you know, even going into that final against Venus, the story really became about Venus I thought for you know, for again reasons that are that are I think very story worthy, but Muguruza ends up winning that match, um, second Grand Slam title. the The big takeaway I have had from Muguruza from really her first couple of you know since she's established herself and since she's won two Grand Slams and, and finished second at another one is she actually reminds me a bit of Stan Wawrinka uh, in kind of rising to the occasion on select events, notably big events, and kind of wavering otherwise. And my question to you is you, after seeing her up close, after seeing her for these couple of years, I mean, am I selling her short on this or are we, you know, is, this, is that a fair comparison?
1: It could be. It could be. Um, you know, Muguruza, like, it's a good comparison to start. Muguruza and Bavrinka have an incredibly high percentage of their titles from Grand Slams. Um, um, Stan is one maybe one or two masters and he's won three grand slams. Muguruza has won four to- titles total in her career, two of them grand slams. Um, she didn't win a tournament in between last year's French Open and this year's Wimbledon. It was very Stan-like. Um, I think Muguruza has, obviously has more potential, potential to be um, a bigger star and a more consistent player. She's 23. Stan didn't win his first slam until he was nearly 30. Um, and now he's 32 and I think she, overall there's, there's fewer players who are better than her ahead of her. Unlike Stan, there's four guys who are generally more consistent and just generally have been better and will always be favored to beat Vavrinka. I don't think that's necessarily true when Muguruza plays well, she can pretty much beat everybody as we've seen. She's beaten Serena twice at, at the French open. Um, uh, she pretty much, she beat Kerber. Uh, number one player at, at Wimbledon, you know she can beat anybody. When her game is, you know, she has a more, a more sort of overwhelming, dominating game than even than Stan, um, you know, against the against the competition she's facing. So I think she has, she has a lot more potential. She already has two Slams at 23. You got to think, you know, she could end, she could end up with seven, eight, ten Grand Slams if she, you know, if she. You know, lives up to that potential.
0: Yeah, and, and I think I think the the point you make about age is a is a very valid one, and certainly about the environment that surrounds her. That we are we are still, I think, waiting for um, you know who will really want to take that mantle on the WTA and kind of run with it. If if that's even something that we for we project on Muguruza going forward. Um, the one thing I. Yeah, I bring it back to the Stan comparison in a way is that Stan is, I think in terms of the fan appeal, he has, he has gotten really well, very over because of this underdog, um, you know, just way about him, not only because of the, the, the players that are almost always just above him in the rankings, but in the way he's gone about his career, he obviously a very late bloomer, um, you know, he's, he, he wasn't always the paragon of, of fitness or health that was always talked about in the past. You know, he's always going to live in the shadow of Roger Federer uh, just because of um, the relation those two have. And and I wonder also about for Muguruza, um, and, I, and this in a way ties back to kind of where we see a lot of the champions. Yelena um, Ostapenko, perhaps another good example, is the fan appeal of of someone um like Muguru's i mean i kind of wonder and i i'm sort of curious to see the remainder of this year and especially moving forward i mean who the who the fans really want to gravitate to because i think that's a big part of of really establishing you know kind of the next faces of the game and i think that's i think we have some answers at this point about on-court performance and the ability of certain players but i think the jury is still out on a lot of you know who who the fans really want to make as the face of the game moving forward and i i'm kind of curious to see what muguruza um, you know how how that response ends up being
1: yeah i think muguruza can be popular she has a definite style she looks good she has a good personality um, you know, in, in press conferences and you could see it after the, after Wimbledon, she, you know, she has an engaging personality. Um, you know, sometimes she, when she goes bad, she go, you know, she, you know, she, um, goes the other way when she, she can, she can get pretty listless out there as well. But, um, but when she's good, I, I feel like she's an exciting player to watch that people could get behind. She hits, you know, she goes for shots. She's, she doesn't just get the ball back in the court. Um. You know, so I think I think she could be popular. Whether whether that translates into popularity in the U.S., I don't know. I also think Ostapenko is somebody who who could be popular. She has a really good personality, an exciting game, and is young. She has you know she has that youth appeal. I think both of them, and you know, it really just comes. I think popularity comes from winning. Becoming number one is is the big deal. You know, when we look at the men's side, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal have always had bigger bigger fan bases than Andy Murray because they spent so much, I feel like because they spent so much more time at number one, that's the thing that makes the difference. If Muguruza would take over number one and win Grand Slams consistently, then she becomes a whole different, you know, she becomes a whole different personality in the game.
0: Let's also talk about who Muguruza defeated in that final. Venus Williams, as I mentioned, um, now 37 and, enjoying what i would consider to be one of the best seasons of her career it's it's a season where she is now runner up at two grand slam tournaments and um and really you know of all of the renaissances that we've seen this year it's it's almost in ways hard to pick which one is is most unlikely between you know the between federer nadal both who had extended injuries last year and I have Venus, who for you know, I would say about four or five years now, we've almost been wondering, you know, is this going to be, you know, the last time we see her play a U.S. Open, for example, um, and and I I think it's worth calling attention to what this year, what she's accomplished this year, because I think it it possibly could be um, overlooked a bit by what we've seen from Roger Rafa, the fact that Venus has come up just short at a couple slams. And, um, and I, I just think it's, it's a, uh, it's one of, it's, it's what's going to make part of this 2017 season, which I think has been such a different year than, than so many that have preceded it. Um, you know, it needed a lot of build up to get to this point in this dramatic arc, but, um, but you know, we, we've wrote a lot about Venus too over, uh, the past couple months. And, um, I just want to get your take on what you saw from her when you were at the Olion club.
1: Yeah, I mean, leading up to the final and all the way through the first set of the final, some of the best tennis you've seen from her since maybe 2009, last time she won at Wimbledon. And I think you're right that that um, you know, as as amazing or um, as as Nadal and and Fedor have been this year, Venus is probably it was more unlikely and and seems you know would have been harder to predict her coming back. She when she made the final of the Australian Open, that was the first time she'd done it since either 2003 or 2004, you know, that's, that's how far back we're going for where she, you know, when she last did that, I mean, that's way beyond what Nadal and Federer have come back from. Um, you know, just the sheer amount of time that she went between making grand slam finals and sort of spending years looking like she was just on the sort of inevitable decline that everybody goes through. The fact that she could, she could come back and reach two out of three slam finals. That's, you know, that's even more amazing. Um, and we'll see, you know, she fell up short both times. I think she was either nervous or ran out of gas in the final of Wimbledon, which is an unfortunate way to finish because you kind of forget how good she was against Conta in the semis and, and a few of her other matches. And had set points uh, against Muguruza that, in the first set. That was really the turning point. Um, you know you hope she can keep going. There's no reason to think she can't. She's talking talked about playing until she's 40. she, She came back after that Wimbledon final and played world team tennis. You know, she's right back, right back out there. You, you feel like she's really going to gear up for the U S open this year. Last year, she lost in a third set tiebreaker to Pliskova. She could have gone further. Um, we know she's, she's won the U S open before. So, and Serena won't be there, which is, you know, she has to consider that an opportunity, unfortunate for, you know, in a way, but also an opportunity for her the same way it was at Wimbledon. Um, so you know, I don't think this is going to be the last we'll hear from from her this year.
0: Yeah, in a week when uh, Tom Brady just turned forty, and you just mentioned that stat, that thought about Venus and where that's gone. I mean, it's it, and considering just everything else that's happened this year, it is not out of the line of question that uh, you know it's a it's a career that, that that's going to go down as really one of the most unique and you know incredible that we've seen in the game um, no matter what era, no matter what, um, no matter what side here. And, you know, I want to kind of move now just a bit to, to some of the, the bigger news that we should catch up on the men's side as well. And, uh, you just, you know, we had the news about a week or two ago that Novak Djokovic, uh, after retiring and Wimbledon to Thomas Burdich, he decided, um, you know, to end his season to, you know, just to, to really just repair. And I don't think it's, you know, going into Wimbledon and what we've seen from Djokovic this, this year, we, it's never looked like he has been entirely comfortable, not just on the, on the mental side, really. You you have seen a lot of what, what appeared to be a little physical strain to on his game. And I, and, you know, I, I, I thought about this when, when the announcement came through, it wasn't, you know, a holy surprise with everything. There was some whispers about it for sure going in beforehand. Um, The way I, the way I sort of saw this Djokovic decision, it's, it it was almost a decision made for him, but I, but I also thought about it in the sense that, you know, he throughout his career at the beginning, he, you know, he was known actually for um, a lot of his retirements at slams. He, I believe, has retired from five Grand Slam matches over the course of his career. I think he's, He's almost completed the retirement slam. I think only the open was the one he hasn't um, pulled the court at at one point. But with Djokovic, um, I think he's gone about his career his own way, kind of a sort of a whether you like it or not style. But in the end, the results have always been there. And he's, you know, not only has he done that once to really catapult himself to number one back in 2011 when an extended run. But he made the course corrections about three years later, once he had uh, went about a year plus without a slam, and this was when he brought on Boris Becker and had his sort of second turn um, atop the you know atop the game for an extended period of time. So, yeah, to me, it's and and when you incorporate when you think about what Federer and Nadal were able to do last year with similar decisions to come back this year. Um, I'm not really too worried about Djokovic moving forward in spite of what seems to be a lot of panic stories about him that, you know, maybe we have seen um, and perhaps we've seen the best of him. But I, I'm not worried about him as, as returning to to his, you know, space in the game, which he's occupied for almost five or six years. So you know, just what are your thoughts when um, I guess when you heard that or maybe just what you're thinking about Djokovic looking to 2018?
1: I think you know this was a phys- decision for a physical reason for his elbow but it also comes I think comes at a good time for him mentally too. I think he would have he may have considered taking a break anyway just to get away from the game. I feel like he was so consistent, so steady basically for 5 years, you know, deep into all the slams, deep into all the masters, really didn't miss a whole lot during that time. Um I you know, I think once he completed that Grand Slam and then had, he had a bit, you know, had a, you know, kind of took a fall there, um, you know, and sort of maybe just got out of that zone that he had been in in such a consistent zone. I think he's, he's really had a hard time getting back into that mental place where he was mental physical place where he was for that long, you know, consistency was always his thing. And it's just probably a matter of time. It wasn't easy for him. Hasn't been easy for him to get that back. Obviously, um, he really hasn't won anything since, French Open last year Uh, so I think this is good and I think as far as him coming back before Roger and Rafa made their own comebacks I would have said this is probably the beginning of a decline for him because he's turning 30 you know up until recently Nadal and Federer looked like they had pretty much begun to decline around 30 that's pretty much typical for the very top guys that we probably would wouldn't see the best of Djokovic but now I think you have to look at with what Rafa and Roger have done this year I think that changes what we can expect or think imagine hope for Djokovic you know going forward you have to think now with those guys at the top Djokovic he must feel like I can get back there I can get back to where I was 30 isn't the you know the beginning of the end for me or even this injury is not this beginning of the end like you know, there's definitely more to come.
0: Yeah. And we have also some questions about Andy Murray as well, who also pulled out uh, of the upcoming Montreal uh, Masters event. So that's going to be without, without him, without Djokovic, Uh, also Marin Cilic as well, who, um, you know, had a very unfortunate Wimbledon final. We didn't get to talking about that, but just, um, you know, another, another big name who will be out of that draw. It's really another draw that we'll, we'll get to next week that, Yet again, it it it's going to uh, you know point to another opportunity for for Federer Nadal to uh, to take that event. It also you know in the way I'm thinking back to what happened in Rome with uh, Alexander Zverev taking that um, breakthrough Masters title. Um, really, he's the, you know, he's the only one who has won a Masters or a Slam this year besides Federer Nadal, and I do think that that. Montreal event is going to provide certainly some some opportunity to not just to um, you know the names we know, but I, I think and especially as well, this is going to be the first event back for um, for Federer for Nadal. I, I'm looking forward to next week in in that respect too. It's it's sort of uh, easing into the 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 open run, and and with with Roger, it's always been you know it's always been mentioned. Uh, no matter what he has done this year, that, that what comes first with him is, is is health and concerning himself with his ability to keep playing at the level he's been at, uh, not only this year, but, but well beyond. And I, um, I think, I think for, for a lot of those reasons, um, you kind of look to, uh, to Montreal as a big opportunity, both on the, you know, the men's and women's side, we don't have the draws out yet, but, uh, But I think it's it opens up the the really the stretch run to the to the open uh, in an interesting way.
1: Yeah, I think Feder, you know, some of the Swiss reporters at Wimbledon were a little surprised that he was going to play Montreal because it's a little bit against his mantra now of of saving himself for really the big tournaments. He's gonna play Montreal Cincy back to back, that's a tough one. And then the open. So that's a that's a big run for him, especially in this new sort of health first mode. He did it in Miami so he can do it you know he played Indian Wells and in Miami back to back and he won them both it wasn't wasn't easy in Miami he did look tired by the end of that but so that'll be interesting but it you know thankfully he and Rafa are in Montreal or you know there would be nobody there of you know barely anybody there in the top 10
0: yeah um, yeah and, and and just to add one point to that is that you know I talked to Paul Anacone for a a piece on um on Roger for the US Open issue and he you know I asked him essentially given what Roger's done this year. I mean, what are kind of, what are really the expectations, but also the concerns still moving into the open. And he, you know, at this, when we were talking, we, it was undecided whether, what Federer's schedule post Wimbledon would be. But he said that in spite of everything, that a full, you, a full summer schedule leading into Flushing Meadows, which is pretty condensed. You're, you're, you're talking about a, a, a stretch of five weeks where he could conceivably be playing four weeks of tennis deep into, um, you know, deep into each of those weeks. So it's, it's, it's something that, that is a, is a view shared by people that know him well and certainly by him himself.
1: And it's also interesting for Rafa, you know, where does he come, you know, what's he going to be like after the high of the French open and kind of the low of Wimbledon or coming back to earth at Wimbledon? How's he, how's he going to look on a hard courts? He's won in Montreal before. Um, but you know, it's never for sure how he's going to be during this part of the season. You're never really, you know, sure. And I, this'll be an interesting, interesting, um, week or two weeks to see where, where he is and what, um, you know, what, which Rafa do we see? The one who, who won everything on clay or the one who has lost some, lost a, some close matches in the last couple of years. You know, what, especially, you know, looking back at last year's U.S. Open, you know, where's, where's Rafa going to be on on hard courts this year? So we'll get a good early look at that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I thought for Rafa, it was so telling. One of I think the, the takeaways for Wimbledon for me was just the, the reaction of Rafa with, you know, with his defeat uh, to Mueller and that, you know, that marathon of a match. But, but more than that, it was that, that palpable sense of disappointment that, that he expressed post match. Um, it 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 hasn't always been that way with him in some of his defeats. There, I think he, I think for a little while now he is he has sort of realized kind of where Wimbledon is in relation to his, um, you know, his schedule, his body, his game. Obviously, at this point, this is it's. Rarely have I seen such a change from. Someone thriving at Wimbledon early in career to really having a difficult time with it um, in the latter part of his career, but hearing Rafa at the podium after that match, sort of ruining this opportunity. I think he, I think he has, you know, given what he's done from essentially day one of this season, uh, moving on into clay um, and you know into into what. Was perhaps pointing to that Roger Rafa collision at Wimbledon. I think he, I think he really sort of thought he, um, you know, it was it was one that in a sense, in a sense, he'll he'll end up kind of uh, having a bit of regret about. But I mean, there was little he could do, obviously, in that match against Muller.
1: Well, he could, you know, he had his break points, he had his chances. Um, Muller played well, but you know, I thought Rafa had sort of solved his his late match nerve problem His last is his fifth set nerves problem, maybe at the Australian open when he, when he won a couple there. Um, but he hadn't, you know, that, that cropped up. It was the same sort of feeling where he had a chance to take the lead and couldn't do it. Um, you know, so that's what I'm, I'm interested to see where he goes from there.
0: Yeah. And, uh, like I said, we'll, we'll touch on that. Uh, once we have the draws out, uh, next week, I mean, I, I to close, um, you know looking through uh, you know this week um, you know and really I guess since uh you know since Wimbledon we had some play in Newport we had some hall we had the Hall of Fame inductions as well um, any anything of, of that that's kind of caught your eye as we as we move into what should be you know what I think for August given given all the dramatics of this year I think should be you know really a, a really not a slow burn toward the end of the year. I think there's a really a lot of, um, you know, a lot of great, uh, you know, potential for not only just players, but more of these really rich stories that I think have, have carried this year. You know, not only um, what we've seen from from Roger Ruff on the men's side, from some new, some, from Ostapenko on the women's side, you know, you're seeing Zverev, uh, you know, capitalize on a bit of his potential with that title in Rome I mentioned, but just to, you know, any thoughts on what's happening right now as we uh, kind of make our way forward?
1: Well, one thing that surprised me today is that the Davis cup, the ITF um, board rejected the idea of going to best of three, um, best of three set matches in Davis cup. It's a bit of a surprise. I thought I sort of assumed that was a done, a done deal. And I sort of had it in my mind that it was going to be best of three from now on. Um, so now we go back to traditional best of five. I always thought best of five was good because Davis cup sort of deserves that kind of big treatment, um, like a major and you know, that's just always the way it's been. It sort of gives it a more serious feel. But, but in the time since it was proposed that they go to best of three, I was sort of starting to get used to the idea of best of three and sort of thinking, well, that would be okay. Maybe a little less involved, a little less time consuming. Um, but now it's back to best of five. So I don't know how, you know, you just roll with one or the other, but I was starting in my mind. I'd already, I had already gone to best of three.
0: It, it has. And again, I agree with you. I didn't even know this was being put up for, um, that it was being put up for vote amongst a member, a nation member group that was still split on this. There were some obvious, um, Disappointment of it from Dave Haggerty, um, who runs uh, who runs the ITF about this, and it and it really just still marks the the great division between Davis Cup and some of these um, proposed new events, the Labor Cup being one of them. Uh, the way that format is going to reflect the, I think, changing perhaps changing taste, whether it's fan taste or consumer taste or marketing taste, honestly of those two events. And you also sort of, you know, when you, when I think about where the Davis cup is and its place in the game, you know, this is a year also where we're going to see a next generation. Uh, it's branded as the next gen ATP tournament in Milan, where uh, they're going to be playing a version of, they're going to be playing with a scoring format that I believe is best of uh, to up to four games per set. Um, I may be a little bit off on this, but, but there is clearly a, you know there's there's clearly a a time where we where, where the where the direction the speed of tennis this has been a, a an issue you've wrote you've written about but it's come to the surface not only in the rec game but in the pro game as well um and i think this is just kind of the latest example of of a lot of sort of uh indecision perhaps but more just sort of disagreement on on really where how this sport should be presented and what's the best way to to give tennis um with its with its undeniable international appeal but still with its struggles just um you know latching on as opposed to you know t- a, a team sport would um and I, I just think this is a this is another instance where we're still kind of figuring out where the future of this game goes.
1: Yeah, it does seem to be a big split between the Slams, and Davis Cup, and these new these new ideas. Even college tennis, um, in the U.S., place, other places are just going shorter. And I think, you know, I don't mind the split. I like the idea that there's there's these ex- experimentation, these new events. I like the fact that the next gen finals is going to be a different scoring format, Labor Cup. You know, bring all those in and let people see them, you know, let let people see them not at the slams, obviously, yet, but let people get used to the idea or see if they can, you know, stomach shorter tennis or if they like it. Um, I think there's there's room for it. And I think eventually it'll get maybe it'll get to the slams in Davis Cup. But I also like that the slams are traditional and, and I still like three out of five. Um, but like I said, Dave, almost now that it's been proposed and gone back. It's almost feels, feels a little like a step back for Davis cup, even though nothing has officially changed. And I think for Davis cup though, the big, the big thing is not best three, best three out of five. That's not what the players are most, you know, worried about, or that's not what keeps them out. It's just the schedule itself. It's, it's having to go four times a year to somewhere, you know, somewhere possibly around on the other side of the globe, right after a grand slam, you know, that's a lot for the top guys. That That's really the place where they'll have to, if they're going to solve whatever problems they feel they have, it's going to be in the schedule.
0: Yep. No, very fair point there. Um, we'll wrap it up there, and we will, uh, as I said, touch base once we move on to Canada. Um, Toronto for the women, Montreal for the men this year, uh, both of them of intrigue for the reasons we've gone over, um, on this edition of the tennis.com podcast. We'll be back next time for Steve Tigner. This is Ed McGrogan. Thank you again for listening. Talk next week. You've been enjoying the tennis.com podcast for all the latest news and events. Head over to tennis.com.